Thank you, Nancy. If you have your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 20 of Mark chapter 5. And what, what, what we're going to come across this week is, is if you weren't here last week, we're going to come in, uh, we're going to see the second scene, scene number two, uh, where the power and authority of Jesus is on display. So if you weren't here last week, last week we saw the, the power of Jesus on display as he stilled the storm. So there's the, the, the storm rising, he said, peace be still, and the storm was quiet, and so he saw his authority there. And this week, we're going to see his power on display as he casts out a, a whole host of demons. And so we're going to see, I mean, the main point this morning is that, that Jesus is Lord over demons. And so just a heads up for, for next week, uh, my plan is to keep going through the Gospel of Mark next week. And so, so you won't hear a, a typical Resurrection Sunday passage, but before you get too upset at me, uh, we are going to look at a resurrection passage because as, as the schedule has been laid out, next week we'll see the power of Jesus on display as, as he heals a disease, but he also raises a dead girl. And so it's a resurrection passage, and, and the, the, the glory and the power of the resurrection will be clearly uh, dis, uh, put on display next week. So it is a resurrection passage, and, and I do think it's a, a fitting passage for, for Easter Sunday. So that's what, that's what we'll be doing next week, so you can read ahead if you want. Uh, but, so if, you should be at Mark chapter 5. And before we read our passage, let me do something I, I don't normally do, but I think it's, it'll be helpful for us here. Now, before we, before we read the passage, I, I want to kind of set the stage, okay? Because what we're going to see is we're going to see a, a demon-possessed man, and, and he's going to be possessed by a legion of demons. And so demonic activity is a huge part of, of this, this week's passage. And so what I want to do is I just want to give a brief overview of, of what demonic activity is, and I, and I think that'll help us set the stage. So if you've been, been with us as we've traveled through Mark, we've come, come across demons and unclean spirits so far. And so if you remember in Mark chapter 1, uh, as Jesus encountered the, the, the man with an unclean spirit in the synagogue and cast him out, uh, later in chapter 1, the, the, the sick and the demon-possessed were all being brought to Jesus. He was healing them and casting out demons. Uh, in, in Mark chapter 3, when, when he appoints his 12 disciples, he does so with the express purpose of, of that they might have authority to cast out demons. And then later in Mark chapter 3, his opponents claim that he's casting out demons. Yeah, we recognize that, but he's doing it by the power of Satan. That was the charge that they charged Jesus with. So in, so in one sense, we've seen the authority of Jesus over demons thus far in, in the Gospel of Mark. But this week, in our passage this week, demon possession is a, a central role, and it's not just one demon-possessed man here and one demon-possessed man there. This, this is a man who is possessed by a legion of demons, so hundreds or thousands of demons. And so this is, this is quite a, an opponent that Jesus displays his authority over this morning. So what does the Bible say about demons? Uh, what, what, what does it teach? Um, first thing to note is the origin of demons. Okay, demons, much like plants and animals and humans, okay, all of these things, demons included, are, are part of creation. Okay, so, so demons... We'll, we'll say in a second, we're, we're originally angels, okay, so they're part of the creation. Now, that tells us immediately, like every aspect of creation, they are subject, subordinate to God, okay? So that's good news. That's good news. It's not a level playing field. So, so God and Satan, it's not like yin and yang and these two equal powers that are fighting for control. No, it's God and everything else, 
Okay, so God is subordinate, or demons are subordinate to God. I mean, think about in, in, in the book of Job. Remember when, when Satan comes to tempt Job, only thing that he can do is what God tells him he can do. And one thing God says, he says, you can't kill him. That means you can't kill him. So Satan could not kill him. He could not do it because God had said you can't. And so they, they started, we, we would say they, they were created, they, they originally were, were angels, okay, part of this body, this host of angels, and, and a rebellion took place. And so Satan is, is believed to be the, the arch angel who, who led this rebellion. Not much is said about the fall or the rebellion of, of the angels, uh, but one thing that we know as we read our, our scriptures, creation culminates in, in Genesis one thirty one. The temptation of Adam and Eve is Genesis 3.1. Somewhere between there, angels fell. That's all I can tell you. Because and when we get to Genesis 3.1, Satan is, is working against God. Okay? So, so they fell sometime. They rebelled against God, and God cast them out of heaven. A simple definition that I would say for demons, they're evil angels who sinned against God and who now continually work evil in the world. Yes, that's their purpose. They, they, they are working evil in the world. Uh, what, what do they do? It's hard to think about demons without Satan. Okay, These two are they're, they're on the same team. It's as if one's the, the head and, and the others are, are all the members, the, the body, body parts working. And so if you think about Satan, he's the prince of the power of the air, Ephesians 2 says. He has this, this earthly realm is, is where he can wreak havoc. Okay, He's the prince of the power of the air. He's the ruler of the world, John, John 12, 31 would say. And the goal of Satan, the goal of all demons, is to fight against God, to oppose God, to, to work against his kingdom. And so Satan's, Satan's what he does, his activity, and, and what we would also say demons do is, is they, they lie. Okay? They, they say things that are not true about God, about others, about, about things that God has done. They're, Satan's the father of lies. They, they tempt. Okay? They tempt. They seek to, to get other people on their team to doubt God, to, to cast fear um, at the untruth of God. They're, uh, they're, Ephesians 2 also says that, that, they're, that, this, that, that demons, that Satan is at work in the sons of disobedience. And so if you're not a Christian, okay, demons are at work in your life. I mean, I don't know how else to, to understand Ephesians 2, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. Blinds, uh, 2 Corinthians 4, Satan blinds unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel. Okay, so, so when, when you're sharing the gospel with a friend or a, or a relative, there's, there's spiritual warfare going, going on. If they're saying, well, that's foolish, that makes no sense to me, okay, Satan is blinding them. He, that's what he does. He, he, would, he, would, he, would, he would do all that he could to prevent people from, from understanding and believing the gospel, First uh, Peter, a well-known verse, Satan prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So all these activities, they're, they're anti-God. Uh, the fate of demons, uh, which is good news for us in Revelation 20, uh, there's this scene where, where John sees at the, the, the very end of the book of Revelation, John sees Satan, the beast, and the false prophet, this, this anti-trinity, are all thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Okay, so judgment of Satan and his demons will be complete. It is certain. Okay, so that their fate is determined. Uh, from the beginning of creation, we saw they, they were created, they fell. At the end, they're, they're going to be judged finally and completely. 
And in between these two points, the, the, the game-changing point, the, the turning point in the experience of, of Satan and demons was the appearance of the Son of God. So as we, we turn to the Gospels, when Jesus shows up, okay, things are about to change for Satan and demons. I think this is one of the reasons as we're reading the Gospel accounts, there's a lot of satanic, demonic activity. They know what's at stake in the appearing of the Son of Man and, and the, the mission that he's on. I think that's why at the outset... He, he faces Satan, man-to-man, one-on-one, and, and conquers him. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't fall. Uh, so Satan and his purposes, when, when Jesus comes, he dies and he's raised from the dead. The dominion of Satan and his demons is destroyed. His purposes are defeated by the death and resurrection of Jesus. Okay, so his authority is, is fully put on display when Jesus dies and then raises again over sin and death. And so Jesus is stronger Jesus is stronger. And so the destiny of Satan and his demons is unmistakable. The verdict has been declared. They have no power. Okay, so, so they, they have no power. Their time is short. Okay, their, their clock is ticking. They've been defeated, and they, they, soon they're going to be completely defeated, thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur. But here and now, okay, they're still active in our world. Okay, they're still here. So, so how do we think about Satan and about, his, about demons? Now, what I'll say is, as often in the Christian life, there's a balance to be kept. Okay, there's a balance to be kept. I, I want to read this one quote from, from an author uh, that, that I think is, is really helpful to, to, to help shape our thinking as we move into this. Listen to what this author says. I, I put it on the, the screen. He says, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race, that's humanity, can fall about the devil's. So here's these two extremes, two unhelpful, unhealthy extremes. He says one is to disbelieve in their existence. They don't exist. That's just folklore, not existent. Error number one. The other on this end is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them, consumed with thinking about them, wondering how they're working, what they're about, or consumed with fear about them, just excessive and unhealthy interest in them. Extreme number two, unhealthy. And this author goes on to say, they themselves, as the devils, they are equally pleased by both errors. Okay, they're happy with, with both of them. If you disbelieve them completely or if you're infatuated with them, they're pleased by both errors. They hail the materialist on one hand or the magician on the other with the same delight. And so I, I want us to be balanced. Okay? I, I want us to avoid both extremes and so as we, as we look into our passage, I just want to remember two things. First, demonic activity is not the main point. Okay, the main point is the authority and the power of Jesus over demonic activity. Okay, so that's the main point. Jesus' power and authority is the main point. And then second, we, we see in this mission, in this encounter, that, that the mission of Jesus is, is, is on display, that he has authority over demons, that they're no match for him. And so the fear of demons is overcome by a trust, by a confidence in Jesus. That's what I want you to leave here. If, you, if you're afraid of, of demonic, if, if you're, you're, you're feeling fears, trust in Jesus who has power and authority over demons is the solution. So I think we've set the stage. Okay, so, so any other questions, talk to me afterwards and we can have some discussion. But let's look at Mark chapter 5. Let's look at Mark 5 verses 1 through 20. So I'm going to start by reading the first, the first 20 verses. So Mark 5, they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. 
He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when, when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he, that is Jesus, was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he, that is legion, begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank and into the sea and drowned in the sea. Verse 14, The herdsmen fled. And they told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and they saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go to your home, to your friends, tell them how much the Lord has done for you, and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away, and he began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. That's a great story. It's a a great story record of of what happens here on the seashore on the Sea of Galilee. Now at the outset, before before I show you, before we look at the breakdown, let me just make one point. The the story, remember they left Galilee and they they got in the boat, there's a storm, they get to the other side. Now just one point to make about the other side. This This is a Gentile land, a Gentile region. So Jesus has left Jerusalem, Jewish land, and he's gone across and now he's in Gentile land. And it seems that the only purpose, the only reason that Jesus and his disciples, that Jesus leads his disciples through the storm is for this man's sake, okay? And I think there's two reasons that Jesus makes this trip just for this man. First is he cares for the man, okay? This, the, Jesus loves this man who's being tormented by the demons, and so he wants to address the issue. But secondly, this man is a Gentile. And so Jesus is making a point, a significant point that that the kingdom that has come, while yes, he's been ministering in Jerusalem and around among Jews, he's making a point that the kingdom is not exclusively for the Jews. There's even Gentiles who are included in the kingdom. And so, kingdom-eligible Gentile demon-possessed men are, are to be reached with the message of the kingdom. And so even the fact that there's pigs all over, commentators say, well, that's evidence that, that the swine, that is Gentile land, because that wouldn't be, they wouldn't be present in Jewish area, territory. So let's, let's look. First, it breaks down in, into pretty, two pretty uh, easy sections. First is the encounter, and then the responses. 
Okay, the encounter and then responses. So let's first look at the encounter, verses 1 through 13. So verses 1 through 13, the encounter. Jesus comes, comes along, gets, gets to the shore, and he's immediately met by the man. Okay, so the man, the man sees Jesus and he comes. So I want to look at the three characters that, that kind of meet in this, in this encounter. So first, there's the demons. So, so what do we know, what do we notice, what do we learn about the demons from this passage? So first, uh, there's no question that, that this man's current state is, is a direct result of the demon possession. Okay, so the demons have, have made this man's life miserable. We'll say more about that in a second. But Mark wants it to be clear that demons have, have made this man, have, have put him in this current state. We also see in verse 9 that, that there's more than one demon. So when they're asked, what's your name? They say, we're many. And they actually use the term legion, which, which that's a military term that could describe anywhere from five to 7,000 people, just, just a, a group of troops. And so I think that's symbolic. And they're simply saying, there's a lot of us. There's more than just what you see. There, there's a lot of us here. So there's many of them. This is quite a foe to, to, for Jesus to oppose. We see also look there in verse 7, the demons know who Jesus is. So, so when they come, when, when, they, when the man comes, he falls and he says, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? And so this demon-possessed man rightly identifies who Jesus is. Right? This isn't uncommon in Mark's gospel. It's, it's the supernatural that always correctly identified Jesus. It's, it's the demon-possessed man earlier who said, I know who you are. It's the Father at the baptism. It's the Spirit saying, this is my Son with whom I'm well pleased. So all the supernatural beings correctly identify Jesus throughout the Gospel of Mark. This is no different. What we see is that the people, the humans, his disciples and his opponents, they're the ones who don't get it. But these, these demons, they know who Jesus is. And we see that, that these demons, lastly, they seek to destroy this man. That, that they seek to made, make his life a living hell. And we could say that's because this man is born in, in likeness of God. He's born in the image of God, and so they are opposing him. They can do, they'll do whatever they can to destroy this man. And it seems if, as if they've been doing a pretty good job. So we have the demons, but secondly, we have the man. So what do we, what do we learn about the man? What does Mark tell us about the man? Look there in verse 3. Look at his home. He lived among the tombs. Okay, so, so not, not, a, not a great address to have. He lived among the tombs. But, but not only that, it's not just that he sleeps there. Verse 5 continues, Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains. He was always crying out and always cutting himself with stones. So you have this man who, who's a tomb dweller. He, he lives among the corpses. Okay, he's an outcast. No, no friends, no family. He's crying out day and night. Crying out, cursing, cutting himself. And so we get this picture just at the outset that, that this man, his only place of, of shelter and refuge was a place that, that corpses were laid. This is a lonely man, no family, no friends. His only companion was the legion of demons that controlled him. I mean, here we, ha- we have a picture of, of an outcast, a lonely one. And yet this is the one that Jesus is pursuing. So what else do we learn about the man? Look there, verse 3 continues. No one could bind him anymore. This tells us he'd, he'd once been able to be bound. So, so it makes sense. You have this, this madman, this, this crazy man. It, 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 it would behoove the people of the city and the man himself to bind him. He's a threat. He's a threat to safety. He's a threat to himself. And so they would bind him. Successfully at one time they did, but now Mark tells us that not even the chains work. 
No one can bind him. Verse 4, he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. He's the strongest man on the island, in the, in the area. No one could subdue him. And so this is the man, this is the man that Jesus encounters, the man whose life had completely been ruined. Normal living was not an option for him. His life was, was that of misery and despair. And then lastly, we meet in this encounter, we see Jesus. What, what do we learn about Jesus? Notice first, verse 6, Jesus shows up, okay? This man sees him from afar. Maybe he's in the tombs and, and he sees the ship coming. He sees him and he begins to run. Now, if I envision myself in this picture and I'm one of his disciples, okay, this, this is an abnormal scene. This isn't just this crowd, oh, Jesus is here, let's go see him. This is one man from the tombs running at us. Now, I would like to think that I would step in front of my teacher and protect him. But if I'm honest with myself, I'm either A, behind him, saying, help Jesus, or I'm getting back in the boat. Okay, this, I, I don't know what's going on. I certainly don't see that man running and say, good, I'm glad our appointment is showing up. This man is, is not on my radar as, some, as the purpose for me being with Jesus on this other side. But we'll see, that's exactly why Jesus is there for this man. And so these disciples, they, they see the man approaching. He falls down before Jesus, verse 7, and crying out with a loud voice, he says, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Now, verse 8, if you jump ahead, Mark tells us that, that I guess, as he's approaching, Jesus is telling the Spirit to come out of the man. And that precedes the, the question from the demon-possessed man in verse 7. But he says, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? It's as if as soon as Jesus steps foot on the soil, they know that, that the enemy has entered their territory. And they, they know what's happening. They know they're overmatched by the man that's just stepped on the scene. They know this isn't like, like the men that normally try and tie us and bind us. This man's different. And so they're running to him and they fall down before him. What have you to do with me? Why are you here? What, what business brings you here? So Mark intends, as, as I mentioned earlier, he, he wants us to notice the, the identity. Jesus, Son of the Most High God. These, these demons are theologically accurate. They know who this is. And it's their knowledge of who he was that led them to fall down before Jesus. Notice, notice as it continues, it, it's not an act of worship, it says the man approaches and he falls down. He's not worshiping Jesus, but it is an, an act of homage because they know who Jesus is and the power that he has. So, so the demon, the demon-possessed man, shows respect because he recognized that he was confronted by one greatly superior to him. And so as this interaction, as it, as it progresses, we're going to see it's not level playing ground. Jesus is clearly the superior man, the superior power. And so notice in verse 7, they continue, I adjure you by God, do not torment me. Right? That, that's in a, that's, that's in, they, they acknowledge a power. You have, the, you have the ability to torment me. Don't do it, please. They're begging, adjuring you by God, do not torment me. And then in verse 10, he begged him not to send them out of the country. They're saying, please, begging. Notice the word begging him, don't send us out of the country. We like it here. Don't, don't send us away from here. In, in a parallel account in Luke's gospel, Luke actually records the man saying, don't cast us into the abyss. Okay, so that's a little bit different twist on it, but, but nonetheless, the point is that Jesus can do whatever he wants to with these demons, and they're saying, please don't do it. So they're begging 
Jesus, knowing they're at his mercy. And so then, after this, this brief encounter, don't, don't send us out of the country, don't cast into the abyss, verse 11, things get a little strange. As I read that, did any of you think, well, that's, that's weird? Verse 11, random fact, there happened to be a great herd of pigs feeding on the hillside. Okay, why is that important? The demons, verse 11 continues, the demons begged Jesus, send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. Again, this is, this is begging him. Please, if, if it pleases you, do this. And then verse 13, so he gave them permission. You see the language here, permission. He gave them permission. Verse 13, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank and into the sea and drowned in the sea. I mean, what I wouldn't give to, to see this. I mean, can you imagine this scene? So one minute, 2,000 pigs. So, so 2,000, that's a big number. 2,000. So one minute, 2,000 pigs are, are feeding. They're eating grass on the hillside. The next minute, they're all headed down the hill, down the steep bank, over into the sea. I mean, it reminds me of an old computer game, a lemmings game. Where, where everyone followed the one in front. You had to do, I forget what you had to do, but they, they just followed and did what the one in front of them did. It's like the pigs, they, they all head to the, the sea and plunge to their death, one after the other, after the other, after the other. I mean, how long does that take? Now, I have lots of questions about, about this, about what just happened. And honestly, I, I don't have a lot of answers. I, there's a lot that, that we just have to say, okay. I mean, the pigs died. A question I have is, well, what about the demons? What about the de- okay, the pigs are dead. Does that mean the demons are dead? If the demons were destroyed, Jesus, couldn't you just destroy them, sent them into the sea on their own? Why'd you have to involve the pigs? Right? How many of you had bacon this morning? Why the pigs? In fact, a lot of people will, will look at this, non-Christians will say, this is why I'm not a Christian. He unnecessarily killed 2,000 pigs. Jesus doesn't have any concern for animals. People look at this and they'll charge Jesus with wrongdoing here. Why the pigs, Jesus? But like I said, there's lots of questions that we just, we just don't have the answer to. But here's what we do know from, from what just happened. We can safely assume that there's not a question as to who has the upper hand in this encounter. It's clear that Jesus is the one with authority. The demons are, are begging Jesus, don't destroy us, please send us here, and, and Jesus gives them community. So whereas the, this, this whole community had desperately tried to tame this man, okay, this demon-possessed man, they, they tried with chains and fetters, and, and none of them could do it. Here we have Jesus freeing him. So Jesus doesn't have to bind him, Jesus actually frees him. He doesn't have to contain the evil, he frees him, and he does so with the word. It's not a question who's in control. And then I think the second thing that is safe to assume is that whatever happens to the demons, now some people say, well, well water is, 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 a, is a symbol of, of chaos and, and, and that's, that's where, where, where demons will go and they'll, they'll be destroyed. And so that's what happened. They were destroyed there. Um, there are lots of explanations. I think it's, it's safe to say that the demons are no longer an immediate threat to this man or this town. I think, I think that's the point. Much like what took place in the boat... Remember last week with the fear of, of the storm, here, the fear of the demon, it, the object of the fear changes. 
So, so whatever it means, they're not afraid of that, those demons anymore, but rather now they're afraid of the man who's just cast out the demons, as we'll see in a minute. The fact that Jesus has authority over the demons is the point. Now, here's, let me pause before we look at, at the, the responses and just make two applications from this. First application, Jesus brings freedom from slavery of sin and darkness. So Jesus brings freedom from slavery of sin and darkness. Now, now it's true. Now I recognize this. It's true that not all men and women are demon-possessed. Okay, so that's true. Not all of you sitting here are demon-possessed. Okay? Yet, hear this, by nature, all men are ruled by dark and sinister forces. By nature, we all are ruled by sin. And so in this sense... This man vividly illustrates the terrible plight of the human condition. And so think of this man enslaved to the demons, slave to fear and, and being controlled by them as an illustration of the human condition apart from Christ. Dead in sins and trespasses, slaves to unrighteousness, following the prince of the power of the air. And so the fact that Jesus has authority over, those, over these demons is good news for Christians Because Jesus has power over those things that once enslaved us. Through this encounter, Christ has exhibited to us a proof of his grace which is extended to all mankind. Though we're not tortured by the devil, yet he holds us as his slaves until the Son of God delivers us from his tyranny. Naked, torn, and disfigured, we wander about until Jesus sets us free. So Jesus' authority over the demons and his destruction of them in this encounter is a foreshadowing of what would happen when Jesus went to the cross. Right? His, his authority and his destruction of evil is, is put on display most clearly in the cross. The crucifixion of Christ. Listen to what Paul writes in, in Colossians 2. This is verses 14 and 15. Here, listen to this language that Paul uses. He said that God set aside the record of debt that stood against us and nailed it to the cross. And listen how he he further emphasizes. He said, He, that is God, disarmed the rulers and authorities. These These are spiritual. These are demonic. The rulers and authorities. He disarmed them and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. And so on the cross, sin, Satan, rulers, authorities, powers are triumphed over. That's good news for us. Jesus is stronger. The triumph of Jesus over the demons on the hillside overlooking the Sea of Galilee was a, tri- was a foreshadowing of the triumph that was coming. It's good news that Jesus has power and f- offers freedom from sin and darkness. And then second, I'll only briefly cover this, but this encounter I think helps shape our perspective on demonic forces and influence. And, and I say it, it helps shape our perspective because... I think what this should do is tell us, give us, inform us of the reality of demonic forces. So that, that, that's how we should think about sin, about the world, that, that demonic forces are active. Okay, that, I think, think that's, that's, that's an application. But, so I emphasize that to keep us off of this end. Okay, they're real, they exist, they're active. But balance, I mean, if you just think about if you think about the New Testament letters, think about Paul's writing to churches. How often does he mention or bring up evil spirits? Right? There's a much greater enemy than the demonic there fighting uh, present among the churches, and that's the sin of the people. 
So if you think about it, in just the letter of, of 1 Corinthians, so there, there's lots of fighting and, and dissensions, and, and Paul doesn't write to them saying, church, rebuke the evil spirit of dissensions. Rather, he says, church, agree, be united, and, and of the same mind, and of the same judgment. Or there, there's a case of incest, where, where this, guy, this man is, is, is sleeping with his mother-in-law, and they're, they're proud about it, and they're boasting about it. And he says, don't, don't, don't uh, rebuke the spirit of incest that's present among you. He says, rather, get that man out. He's not a Christian. Cast him out. Or there's disorder, and, and this is later in chapter 11. There's disorder at the Lord's table. There's, there's people are eating and, and not caring for the poor. And, and he doesn't say re- rebuke the spirit of disorder or selfishness. He says, wait for one another. Everyone examine yourself. And so, so all, all this to say that, that the demonic forces are, are not the cause of sin and problems in the Christian life, primarily, because Paul doesn't address them. He says, fight sin, obey, do this. He, he puts the charge to the Christians themselves. And so, so the New Testament emphasis on that doesn't leave room for blame shifting. The devil made me do it. Paul doesn't leave, doesn't leave room for that argument. Instead, as believers, we recognize that that we've died to sin, we've been united with Christ, we've been given new life. Because of what Christ has done, we have new life, and so sin no longer has dominion over us. We're Jesus' people, and we take responsibility for sin, and we fight it. And so, so we don't have to live paralyzed at the fear of demonic. We have something much, much more dangerous living within us called our flesh. And so if you're here this morning, you're a Christian, can I encourage you, your struggle with sin isn't an impossible fight. Jesus is on your side. He's freed you from slavery and dominion. You aren't helpless. So be encouraged this morning. Well, well, quickly, let's move on to the second section, the responses, verses 14 through 20. So as this passage continues, Mark records two very different responses that follow the encounter. So you have the response of the herdsmen and, and the townspeople, and you have the response of the man. And so first, notice the response of the herdsmen and, and the people of the city and the country. So, so after seeing all 2,000 pigs run over the cliff, the herdsmen, the guys who were probably responsible, had been, had been charged to, okay, just watch these pigs. All they do is eat. Just watch them. Okay, these men, they're running to tell what just happened. It wasn't our fault. It wasn't our fault, I promise. We weren't asleep on the job. So they run back and they tell everyone what had just happened. So obviously, if you, if you get that message, what just happened, you're going to go see. I don't believe it. Let's go see. So everyone comes out. Verse 15, and they came out, and they see Jesus, and they saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion sitting there clothed in his right mind. And so they come out, and they, their attention immediately goes to, to not, not really Jesus, but to the man sitting beside Jesus. Because this, is that, is, that, is that the man, is that legion? He used to roam around the tombs and the mountains screaming and cutting himself, but, but now he's sitting. He used to have no clothes, but now he's clothed. He, he used to be crazy, but... But now he's in his right mind, just sitting with, with that teacher. I mean, a few, mo- a few moments earlier, he was begging Jesus, please, please uh, don't cast us out of the region. But, but now he's, he's sitting, calm, at the feet of Jesus. He used to be characterized by chaos, but, but, but now there's order, there's peace. And, and so the people see that, and how do they respond? They respond at the end of verse 15. They were afraid. I mean, think, think about the possible responses. So, so you're a townsperson. You come in and you see that. I mean, you could rejoice. Wow, the crazy guy's not crazy anymore. Our town's safe. Look, my, my brother's normal again. None of these responses. 
they're afraid. They're afraid of, of what, what has caused this man to change so drastically. Having seen this transformed life and having seen the, probably the dead pigs floating in the sea and, and hearing about what had happened, they, they begged Jesus, get away from us. This is not your place. Get out of here. I mean, ironically, there's similarities between the townspeople and the demons. Remember the demons, they begged Jesus, don't cast us out of the region. Now the townspeople, they're begging Jesus, get out of the region. It appears that these townspeople, they're more comfortable with the wicked forces that take captive human beings and destroy animals than they are with the one who can expel them. Do you see that? Yeah, we know what you just did, but we don't want you here. I mean, if, if anyone was a, a symbol of safety, I'd want him to stay. Let us, let us put you up in our house. But instead, their fear drives them to cast him out. These people see the power of Jesus. They have eyewitness accounts of what had happened. There's no doubt that Jesus is the one who's brought about this change. But instead of responding positively, they, they respond negatively, and they beg him to leave. They want nothing to do with him. So that's their response. That's their first response. But, but second, look at the man. Look at the response of, of the formerly demon-possessed man. Verse 18, this is probably one of the most challenging parts of the passage. As, as Jesus is getting into the boat, he's setting sail. Okay, every request that's made of him, he, he adheres to. So okay, he's getting in the boat, he's going. But this one last request, he does not adhere to. So he's getting to the boat, and the man begs Jesus, let me come with you, I want to be with you. Jesus, let me come. Jesus does not permit the man to come with him. I mean, why? Here's this man. What does he have in this town? He's an outcast. His family's cast him out. He has no friends. He's, he's the madman. They're afraid. No one wants anything to do with him. Please let me come with you. You've changed my life. Let me come with you. And yet Jesus says, no, you can't come. The only request of this passage that Jesus refuses to adhere to. And he shockingly tells the man, go home. Go home to your friends. Tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. doesn't have friends. But I, th- I think Jesus is saying, you know those people that used to be your friends? Go back to them. Go back to them and tell them what I've done for you. Now, to be clear, this is not a refusal, or this refusal to let him come with him, it's not a rejection of him becoming a follower. He's not saying, sorry, you can't follow me. He's saying, your following of me is going to look different than these other 12 people. Your following of me is going to, going to stay here. In fact, this is, this is the uh, uh, first missionary commission. Go back to your own town. Your friends, tell them what the Lord has done for you. Again, Mark doesn't, doesn't, satis- doesn't adequately answer why Jesus refuses to let him join him. But one of the reasons is, is this is Gentile land. Okay, and, and Jesus is going back. Think about a, a man who lived among tombs, who, who dwelt among pigs, going back into Jewish land. It's not going to go well. And so stay there, but for whatever reason, Jesus refuses the request and he tells him to go. Now, one thing, he, if, if, you're, if you're following, if you're checking, remember oftentimes when Jesus performs this miraculous act, what does he tell the people? Don't tell. Don't tell anyone what's happened. Remember, that's happened a couple times. But here, go tell everyone. Is this inconsistent? Why is Jesus doing this? And I think that the the reason is that this is taking place in a Gentile region. And so there are no no messianic expectations. And so there's there's no no danger of of Jesus being being crucified or, or people coming and saying, well, here's our Messiah. Let's crown him. 
This is Gentile land. And so go tell. Go tell all that I've done for you. And so the passage concludes, verse 20, we're wrapping up. He went away and he began to proclaim in the Decapolis, that's, that's the ten city area, the region, how much Jesus had done for him. And notice how it ends. And everyone marveled. Everyone marveled. And so this man in his testimony concerning all that the Lord had done for him, it became the source of everyone in the ten cities marveling. And so this man in his testimony, in a sense, was more effective, was a more effective witness than Jesus himself could have been. And Jesus, as the man goes back and tells Jesus and his disciples, get on the boat and head back to the other side. Well, let me close with two applications. First application for the non-Christian. If you're here, you're not a Christian, I'm glad you're here. I'd love to get to know you, meet you, talk with you. But if you're here and you're not a follower of Christ this morning, if you haven't put your faith, your trust, your confidence in Christ and Christ alone for the salvation, for your salvation, I would encourage you to learn from the negative example of the townspeople. Okay, these are people who they encountered Jesus. They saw what he could do. They saw his power, his authority, and yet they refused to acknowledge who he was. They refused to accept him. There was clear evidence before them, yet they refused. They were afraid. And so if you're here not a Christian, can I tell you, you're not a Christian for a reason. And I would simply encourage you, why? Ask yourself, why? What's the source of your unbelief for these people, the townspeople, is they're afraid of Jesus. Maybe that's your, maybe that's your source of unbelief, but, but I would simply ask you, what's your source of unbelief? Maybe, maybe it's an intellectual hang-up. Maybe, it, maybe it's something, something less significant. Maybe it's you, you, you want to live in sin, or, or maybe, it's, maybe it's just indifference. Yeah, it doesn't matter. I just encourage you Understand, identify why you don't believe, and, and then talk about it. Think about it. Why? Is this really a valid reason? I'd love to sit down with you and talk with you about it. If someone brought you here, a family member, a friend, they would love to sit down and talk with you about it. Just recognize, friend, that a failure to respond positively with faith and repentance is to reject Jesus in just the same way that these townspeople did. And friend, there's a day coming when this free offer of forgiveness of sins, this free offer of of mercy, it will no longer stand open. You need to hear that. There's a day coming when, when the, the door will be closed. But it's not today. Today's your day. We'll have a time of invitation in just a minute. If you want to talk to me, come talk to me. Find me afterwards. But today, today, the door is still open and free forgiveness is offered to you through Jesus. And then, then lastly, as I close, and I realize I've said that several times, but this is really... This is really it. The last application, if you're here and you're a Christian, which I assume is, is the majority of you here, let me encourage you to learn from the positive example of the man. I mean, this man's life was transformed by his encounter with Jesus. This man, he didn't know much. He didn't have much learning. He didn't know much. He'd been a Christian, a follower of Christ for, for a few hours, maybe even a few minutes. And yet Jesus charged him. He commissioned him. Tell how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. If you're here and you're a Christian, that's the commission that the Lord places on you. Tell, brother, sister, tell how much the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. This man was to bear testimony to the grace of God and the transforming power of his kingdom, to bear witness to it. And this is the essence of what it means to be a Christian witness. It's not about learning the right words or developing the most persuasive method. It's, 
It is bearing simple testimony to what God has done for you. And so can I challenge you, brother, sister, this week? Tell of what, how much the Lord has done for you this week. Tell someone. Tell someone. If you need practice, tell yourself in the mirror. If you, don't, if you don't know how much the Lord has done, meditate. Meditate on the gospel. Jesus died for you while you were yet a sinner. And so as we close, we're going to sing a really familiar song. We're going to sing the first verse. And as we sing, I want you to think about the words. Because I chose this song this morning. I threw a curveball to Robert and Nancy, but they're hitting it on the fly. I chose this song because it's a biographical song. You've all heard it before. But as you sing, be encouraged, Christian, by the fact that the Lord has had mercy on you. So let, let's stand and sing Amazing Grace together.